0: Welcome to Sustainably Speaking Beyond the Allah In today's episode, Malik and I are joined by Matthias Lenner. Matthias has a background in agricultural studies and focused his PhD on food retailers' role in promoting sustainable consumption. His research involves sustainable consumption and business models, rebound effects from sustainable consumption, and most recently, digitalization of consumption and sustainability. Join us as we explore sustainable consumption with Matthias and learn about his work at the intersection of research and entrepreneurship. Welcome Matthias.
1: Hi, welcome. Oh, thanks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hi, so, thank you. So let's start at the beginning. What brought you to the world of research and, and what was your sustainability journey?
1: I guess curiosity in sustainability it's it's as simple as that i cared about sustainability and i was curious about solutions i you know the problems were there but it wasn't obvious what the solutions were it wasn't like i very early on picked a research career actually at every turn where whenever i could i tried to leave research <laughs> so i had i had i had clear plans after my my master's and then after my phd again to not stay and uh, that's why i had a year in between my master's and my phd and i had a year in between my phd and and continuing research because i was also always trying to claw my way out of it (laughs) and then i and then i i was sucked back and less that i i do like doing it
0: wow and did your interest in sustainability start in SLU during your bachelor?
1: No, much earlier. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's it's always difficult with the memory because the memory or one's mind hasn't has a tendency to kind of fool you, where you think something is true but it isn't. But the way I remembered is when I, because I have three older sisters, they're eight and nine years older, so so they were my role models when growing up, and when I was starting to be aware of things maybe like 12 13 touch 10 11 maybe they were um in the late teenage years when they you know passionately cared about different things and and environmental protection in particular like the rainforests and and animal protection was a big thing back then so the WWF all of those those things are Mm -hmm. still in my mind about how like how I became aware that this is an issue and it seemed to be really important because my sisters thought it was really important. Now, I think that was how my environmental interest got uh, kicked off. Wow. And then agriculture, because you mentioned SLU, agriculture is actually um, a, a consequence of me being interested in um, food and nutrition. And that is the result of me being interested in sports and fitness. Wow. So that was, came from another angle.
0: Oh good. And yeah.
1: then I yeah and then I so I, I then started to care about how food is produced because I wanted to eat good food.
0: And what made you stay in Sweden after your bachelor at SLU up until today?
1: I was a restless soul uh, even before that. I had spent a couple of years moving around. I would lived in the UK a little bit and in France a little bit, Turkey for a little while. I liked to move around and experience things. So coming to Sweden was just another one of those uh, experiences. And I was supposed to stay for only a year as an exchange student initially. I liked what I experienced. I liked uh, very much how things were done here and uh, university was different into Austria in some ways and I enjoyed that so I tried and succeeded to continue my studies in Sweden instead of Austria.
2: Wow what a journey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Every
1: life (laughs) is. Oh my gosh
2: (laughs) and like Vienna is I mean it's his favorite city in Europe. All right (laughs) (laughs) that's a nice place. (laughs) Definitely it is. Matthias, your research is incredibly innovative and niche, and we wanted to briefly explore together like the concepts, dive into the jargons, and ask you more to provide maybe explanations of what are these rigorous concepts. To I start, hope I can help you. <laughs> <laughs> to start, what is sustainable consumption and what are the main obstacles to promoting sustainable consumption and how can we overcome them?
1: I wish I had a, a simple answer to that because th- there's this thing with, so sustainability as a term is this double-edged sword that on the one hand, it's very useful because it's a big un- umbrella. And so you can can communicate with people and by and large, people understand what you mean with sustainability and you can agree on it. But then when when it comes to the nitty gritty, suddenly sustainability becomes a very squishy term that is very difficult to pin down so mm-hmm. like what sustainable consumption is like I don't know everything and nothing it depends it depends on the context and mm-hmm. usually I like sustainability is as I said it's very useful and, and it has its role but uh, usually I end up when it comes to a concrete research or specific concrete discussions about for example how to achieve sustainable consumption then I usually think that what you have to do is to stop using the term sustainability and be like well now we have to be more specific now mm-hmm. we have to actually know what we are talking about. Do you mean consumption that achieves 1.5 degree lifestyles or do you mean consumption that remains within the planetary boundaries or consumption that protects biodiversity or doesn't use a certain resource? So uh, there's this general, largely agreed upon definition that sustainability, sustainable development and sustainable consumption is, you know, living within our means while living a good life and allowing for next generations also to have a good, good life. But that of course is is something that needs to be broken down into something specific in order to work with
2: it. Definitely and this is like part of also shifting narratives that we we really need now. Sustainable consumption, how can it be integrated into the socioeconomic system? Because usually this is a system where it's a struggle to, to integrate within this innovative and sustainable concepts and to ensure their long-term sustainability and how to overcome these challenges of maintaining cultural heritage.
1: I want to partly go back to the question that you asked before, which connects to this question, I think, about how sustainable consumption can be achieved. And while, as I said, it's like I'm not able to give an answer to this because it's uh, such a broad term that can mean so many different things, but the first thing that comes to my mind Mind when it comes to solving sustainable consumption and consumption usually, I think in many people's mind and very often in research also, consumption is immediately associated with the consumer, mm. the individual, individual choices, doing the right thing, buying the right thing, changing behavior. Mm. And that is, while important, I also think that is in some ways the biggest risk with this discussion about sustainable consumption, that it is, it has a tendency to land on the consumer. It's like, what's wrong with the individual? Why mm. can't the individual not do more? how can we convince the individual, all, the, all of these questions. And while not entirely mis, misplaced or misleading or, or wrong to, to ask these questions, they, I think, easily kind of are leading away attention from the actual issues, with which is policy. Mm-hmm which is top-down regulation and, and organization. Because m- my opinion is that the individual is not responsible for achieving sustainable consumption. Consumer is not the right recipient. Mm-hmm. We are, and that doesn't mean that individuals don't have a role, but we as individuals are, on the one hand, we are consumers. but we're not only only consumers. I mean, sometimes it feels like today everyone is only a consumer, but that, that's not true. We are consumers, we are citizens, we are organized in, in associations and clubs and parents and whatever. We have different roles in society. And Societal and environmental issues. So what you would, by and large, consider as sustainability and and concerned with sustainable consumption, those issues have to be dealt with collectively because they are collective problems. It's not your problem as an individual. It's not your problem as a consumer that the climate is heating up. Mm-hmm. And it, it is justifiably ridiculous to say save the climate by buying another piece of chocolate. There's no, people are not wrong to say that that doesn't make sense. That's ridiculous to say that. That's why it, it depends on which country you live in, of course. But in Sweden, you are supposedly you have 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 a role as a citizen, you can shape politics and this is a question on a societal level we have to as a society say that environmental and social issues need to be solved because I think we are doomed if we believe that the individual can solve that um, and there's you know there's if you then want to go further and break it down and say like well let's look at the individual as a consumer and what they could do realistically like how many of those decisions that we need to that you and I make every day as an as an individual how often can we be well informed about those those are all really complex issues you know what it means to buy a battery from this country or that country and is is it better to drive a battery driven car or an old diesel car or whatever those questions require expertise and as consumers just can't acquire that expertise so therefore it's politics that are required to solve sustainable consumption
0: Wow well, you turned uh, our notion of sustainable consumption on its head <laughs> sorry thank you no thank you for that You've been doing research at the IIEE for almost eight years. What is your favorite part about being a researcher at the institute and which aspects make it most valuable to be a researcher in it?
1: My favorite part about being a researcher, regardless of institute, is the academic freedom that you have from being a researcher. And, you know, you are, it's not the only profession where that is true, but it's one of the professions where it is true that what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do your work is not only a function of what your what your boss tells you to do. It's one of those Professions where you can legitimately say, no, what my boss just told me is not what I'm going to do because it's it doesn't align with academic values and how work is supposed to be done. And I do believe in the scientific method. You know, I think it is by far the best thing we have come up with to generate knowledge. I like that feels meaningful. And uh, you can actually, it's one of those professions where you can say, look, I'm, I've been told that I should do this, but I don't think it makes sense. This doesn't reflect the values that we work according to. And then when, I, when it comes to the institute, and you know it yourself, it's a, it's a very cozy place. It's a small place in a large university, but it feels small in a positive way. It feels familiar. It feels home.
2: It seems uh, you have developed a systematic perspective with each research subsystem and their overarching implications, dynamics of these subsystems together, and how maybe these topics are actually interacting in the bigger picture. Firstly, as a, as a researcher in the sharing economy, what are the prevailing misses that you find frustrating and what are the current limitations preventing its widespread implementation?
1: I should point out that um, I have worked with the sharing economy, but I'm maybe not its biggest fan. Well, I would say I'm a big fan of sharing. Sharing. sharing in the traditional way, communities share. You know that's great. There's hardly anything better. It's it's good. It's good for the environment. It's good for you and I. It makes us happy to be part of a community and to, to share with each other. And I'm very interested, obviously, in the modern version of that, using for example, the digital tools to share stuff. I now, these days, I live in a house in, in the outskirts of Malmö, and um, it's uh, geographically distinct. You can kind of tell where the neighborhood, neighborhood starts and where it ends. Yep. And I'm very glad that this neighborhood has a feeling of belonging together. I think most people in that neighborhood would would agree that they somehow belong to that neighborhood, and so there's a high willingness of of helping each other, sharing and uh, supporting each other. Um, and among others, or one of the most. Powerful tools that that we have to do that is Facebook. It's simply a you know it's this very simple that which exists all over the world in millions of iterations. It's a Facebook group where people write everything from can't find my cat. Has anybody seen it? It's because it hasn't come home for two. That happens surprisingly often, <laughs> at least once a month. Um, <laughs> But also, of course, uh, like um, my son is going on a school trip for a week. Does anybody have a an extra tent or something like that? Or I planted uh, tomatoes. I have five plants over. I don't need it. Does anybody want it? I think that's that's fantastic. Even even the versions where it's a more of a commercial nature, you know, where where you where platforms enable you to say I don't need this anymore. Uh, is anybody interested in either just uh, getting it from me, like mm-hmm. so that I don't, I don't have to throw it away? Or maybe you know I can sell that to you for 100 crowns. I think that works great. It's a fantastic setup. The sharing economy, as it's been often discussed in research, I think it had this weird way of combining this type of behavior, which is important, especially and it can be quite niche, with these platforms, these Silicon Valley IT startups, expanding and expanding with money from some venture capitalists. And then these two were just somehow put together in the same category. And, and I, don't, I can't make sense of it. I think it doesn't make sense. And it's a little bit of a flaw in the academic discussion that this has been going on and allowed to go on, where it's like, what do these two things have to do with each other?
2: One potential relation could be the idea of upscaling to not do it only at the local scale of the neighborhood. Maybe for the widespread of it, we need this kind of technologies or this kind of tools.
1: agree. I mean, that, I'm very interested in those tools. And I think like Facebook did just that. Facebook did upscale neighborhood groups and it allowed for something that was difficult in, in modern cities. In modern cities, people didn't know each other very well. And it took a lot of time to get to know your neighbors. You know, it wasn't in, in, a, in a modern city and people moving all the time it's not sure that you know who lives next door. It's very unlikely that you know who lives in the next three apartment blocks you know you know your people and they are spread out across the city or even across the world but it's not so easy as it used to be that you know the people that ge- that are geographically co- close to you and i think facebook and and similar services but facebook is one of the most used ones did a great job in allowing people to just say you know what we have one thing in common that is like we live close to each other so we share certain common interests let us use this platform to organize and from what i've understood this is incredibly common these neighborhood groups
0: yeah I'd like to ask you a follow-up question regarding digital tools and the relation to sharing and sustainability. Your most recent area of research involves digitalization of business models and digitalization and its connection with consumption. In the AR track of sustainable consumption, we saw that expanding digitalization can be a threat to fuel unsustainable consumption patterns by encouraging excessive online shopping, excessive data storage, energy intensive server infrastructure, etc. In which ways have you found in your research that we can turn digitalization into an opportunity rather than a threat for I feel cautious (laughs) mentioning this, sustainable consumption? No, you can you can, it's (laughs) fine, I mean,
1: because it's it it is a useful concept, especially when you talk on, on a larger scale. I should point out first that I'm pretty early in my I work with digitalization so I feel myself like I I don't know that much yet Um, I'm still learning about the the ways in which digitalization uh, impacts um, how we behave in particular so I'm not sure I can give you so many of the answers I agree with you that there is an equal amount of threat in digitalization as there is uh, opportunity Uh, the opportunities are obviously that you can potentially Make things a lot more efficient just by, you know, algorithms monitor energy and heat consumption of homes. You can optimize that and save resources. You can also imagine that, and this is becoming a little sci-fi now. But you can imagine that digital, that that there's a possibility for digital products and services, which in the end are all services. There's no digital products really. It's, it's it's a service. Um, or at least how I define it or think about it, how digital services can replace physical services. Everybody knows about these examples of CDs compared to um, files or movies and like that. And so in theory, at least, to produce a copy of An audio file requires a lot less resources than producing another CD. So that could potentially mean resource savings to achieve the same outcome, listening to music or watching a movie or remote working and what impact that has. And the idea behind this is of course that You you don't have to commute anymore. You don't have to sit in traffic. You can instead um, do your work from home. You can interact with colleagues Mm -hmm. um, online. The results are not the greatest yet. You know, it's not saving the world so far.
2: But if we're focusing now on a product and envisioning its transition towards a, a more circular and more sustainable business model, what theoretical frameworks do you go back to? Uh, from time to time again. And how do you envision this transition in food system?
1: Well, it's, it feels like I'm a, a parrot repeating the same thing over and over again. But because I said that also about consumers, ultimately, I think it is not so much the business's role as it is the Policymakers' role or society's role to make that transition happen. And and now, now you might wonder why I do the research I do, because now I'm going to tell you I also don't think businesses are the ones responsible for 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 uh, changing that. It's society and as such policymakers. And that doesn't mean again that I leave leave, let businesses off the hook, but in terms of like envisioning the system, an extremely simple, but I think rather. useful conceptualization of how things work, how things are, is this onion model of how things relate to each other. You know, the, the largest circle, the, the skin around it is earth, is other is, um, systems and processes that support life on earth that we depend on. Within those is society or societies. I guess there's many of them and then within those in a in a simplified version it doesn't always work that way in a simplified version within those are businesses and consumers and businesses act the way that societies allow them to act now of course there's problem that's problematic because we live in a world where where businesses are global and so they they can jump societal boundaries in a way and that is one of the the big problems in trying to regulate businesses, that they can just take their business elsewhere. And so suddenly, societies are competing, fighting to keep the businesses uh, there, lowering their environmental standards or lowering their uh, labor requirements, for example, just in order to to attract enough business because we need economic growth in, in this um, mantra that we live in. So I see that practically, it's not simple to achieve that. But as, I still think like as a primary way to try to figure out like how business is going to do the right thing, how are consumers going to do the right thing, I think it is by operating within the right framework. Mm-hmm. Businesses as well as consumers react to incentives or to limitations in what they can do. And that is, I think in the end, the most powerful uh, avenue to go. And, and it's a tricky one. it's a difficult one, it's a slow one. But I think it's the most important one because, um, yes, you can you can. I think what often is the case when you think about sustainable business models and how they like, how could they kind of change everything? How could they suddenly do business while also being, you know, positive on the environment and society? Is like, well, they can if they are rewarded for the right things. Because otherwise, sure, somebody can come up with some kind of magical business model that can combine all three. But unless this is also the the business model that is most rewarded in society, um, and 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 kind of most encouraged, it's not going to become mainstream. It's not gonna. It's not gonna be the next IKEA or Apple because. Mm-hmm. The incentives are not there to become that. Businesses, I think, are the tool. I think if you say, if policymakers decide that, really decide that we need to stay within 1.5 degrees, and so we need to make sure that not more carbon emissions are emitted as this, the goal is clear, the direction is clear, then businesses are probably much better than any other type of organization to innovate towards it, to find good solutions, to make this cheap and fast and convenient and in a way that society is happy with better in my opinion than you know for example policymakers themselves or government organizations because competition is a great tool to spur innovation
0: the first step for circular consumption uh, frameworks you see should come from policymakers
1: yes yeah and it always circulates back to it whenever you do research in consumption or business models uh, you can never avoid in the end then talking about policy again like i th- i think that a lot of the solution will come from the private sector i just think that it is it is problematic when we forget about where the where the initial push has to come from or where where the the rules of the game have to come from in a way you know it's great to look into business models and business model innovation and how to conceptualize new business models to achieve what we want. Only as long as you understand or keep in mind that, that those business models can and will only work if the policy is right.
2: Nice. Uh, as a young professional entering this interplay of uh, green business models, sustainable consumption and sharing economy, uh, what initial steps or advice would you recommend for someone starting their journey in this field?
1: As a researcher and as a practitioner, if we talk about business models, um, to keep in mind that primarily the aim of a business is still to be economically viable and usually economically profitable. And it's still what I want to say is that in the end, talking about business is still going to be a discussion about profit. You know, it's it's you can sometimes it can sometimes be misleading when you, for example, only did talk about or with the sustainability department in a company because. Maybe they don't have profitability at the top of their agenda every day. And of course, not everybody does in a a, a business, but decisions are made based on profitability. For for a researcher, you know, that's like that is often an explanatory factor and I I believe why certain things are done or not. That's also why I think in many instances so-called sustainable business models manage to survive or don't survive. I, I can't say that I have, you know, decades of research experience in the field behind me, but I already am able to see so many ideas come and go and in my opinion it often is just that yeah the sustainability part of it might have made sense and it was like a good idea but it was obvious that it was going to be so difficult to make it profitable and then that's not going to work it's a business and the same thing is actually true for if you want to as a practitioner go into you know for example in the startup scene start start a sustainable business don't forget about the boring part of business which is to make money it sounds so horrible but you know if I'm now we're switching over into maybe also my experience as an entrepreneur And if I can tell you about my hard learned failures, and that is not to write a business plan in the beginning. I thought I was smarter than writing a business plan. Wow. We're just like, who needs a business plan? (laughs) Everybody does. You you need to, because running a business, and the same is true for running a sustainable business, it's just so exhausting, so hard, so much work, and and there are times where you will say, "Why am I doing this? Please, I don't want to do this anymore." And and it really only makes sense if you know you should know that the goal makes sense. You you need to have need to have figured out even if not today it, it is profitable even if today maybe it's so much work and so exhausting. But I have that plan that makes sense. You know, I I counted it. I calculated it. There is a future. And you have to check that, of course. Is that still the case? You know, is that really true? But ideally, you say, well, today might be difficult, but here is the plan. The plan still makes sense. So if I keep working hard, then I can get there. I can get to the plan where the numbers make sense. And I know that I don't have to kill myself over work in order to make it happen. I thought I knew better. I think I had, you know, a a slight disregard for Mm -hmm. traditional business. I was like, who needs old business I'm going to do it differently and then over years of it's been 10 years now and in those 10 years we've learned that not everything but it's still valuable to think outside of the box but many of the lessons that you get taught in a business school are good lessons to know when you start a business
0: Mm. Matthias if you don't mind let's take a few steps uh, back and provide context of this business that you're mentioning and also get a glimpse of how it started 10 years ago Mm. Because beyond academia, you're also the co-founder of Roots of Malmö, a brewery in Sweden that produces kombucha and other fermented beverages. How did the idea start? Why kombucha? And why did you root the company's identity in Malmö?
1: Yeah, so it started as a a hobby it's a a picture book like startup story the only difference you know to the tech startups is that well a that we're not earning billions of dollars a year (laughs) but apart from that it's like we didn't start our business in a garage we started in a kitchen i I started it with a good friend of mine we both were in academia we lived together in an apartment in malmo and um, as i think many people do not only in academia, but in general, like you, you need hobbies, of course. So we had as one of our hobbies, fermentation. I had become interested in beer brewing before when I lived in, in the UK, in Manchester. My friend is a microbiologist, so he had all the skills because of my background in agriculture. And I, I'm a trained cook also. So I, I was interested in baking. So I like baking bread and things like that. And um, my friend was into fermenting vegetables, kimchi and things like that. So, you know, and it was also popular. It was the typical hipster thing to do 10 years ago. So we were part of that trend. We just fermented different things and found it interesting. And then he introduced kombucha to the mix because uh, he's American and it was already popular in the U.S., but it wasn't in Sweden. And so I guess both of us wanted to have a little bit of a more hands-on thing to to do compared to academia, which is abstract and sometimes slow. So it was really just we we made that thing kombucha and we filled it in bottles and drank it ourselves and gave it to friends. And at some point we we're like, I'm sure that would work as a business. You know, it sells well in the us it doesn't doesn't exist here why not try it and then we were sold it on a few markets like a christmas market in town and a harvest market in town things like that and then I, at the time i was volunteering at a, a malmö food cooperative that ran a small organic store and uh, because i was spending a lot of time there it was fine I, I, I asked the others if we could sell this thing in our store this beverage and they were fine with that and so that was our first customer and then it took a couple of hours a week it was really just a, a side project fun printed out, printed the labels on a piece of piece of paper and, and and taped them to the bottles i mean it was not like it took it wasn't a huge success it's not like we you know suddenly sold endless amounts of it but it was popular enough it was f- and we thought it was fun so we just slowly but steadily kept making it bigger. First, we had one of those fermentation buckets. That's 20 liters each. And then we had two, and then we had four, and then we had eight. And at some point, we realized if we want to continue doing this, we need to register a company. So then we registered a company. Um, and then we realized if we want to sell to like cafes as well, for example, we need we need to be approved by the authorities. So then we couldn't produce it in, the, in our kitchen anymore. So then we found a school kitchen in Malmö that allowed us to use the space for free on Saturdays. So they only needed Monday to Friday so uh, we could be in there on weekends then we could do that uh, for about two years we started in 2013 or so until yeah for two years we just did that and then it had become so big that we couldn't really handle it in the school kitchen anymore so when when i say so big it's still tiny you know i think at the most we produced 700 bottles in that school kitchen and that was just too much for that space so then we and we had we had we had never invested in the company it was all just you know our our labor and then we earned a little bit of money and then we used it to buy a cargo bike a little bit of equipment um, and then we had earned enough money or had enough like operating cash flow that we could um actually rent a space and then it, it it just you know it trickled along. It kept growing. In two thousand eighteen, it had a real boost because um, for like a year or so, it was really very trendy here in Sweden, and it was a lot of, got a lot of media attention. And uh, so then our great uh, sales really took off, grew by one hundred and fifty percent in one year. Oh. So yeah, yeah, that was challenging to manage. <laughs> Wow. but but yeah it, it was it was fun as well and so it, it slowly but steadily it, it became more professional but still not so professional in the mm. end you know there were no debt, there were no it was like just me and my friend owning the business it made a little bit of money but around there 2018 2019 we realized we can't continue this way because it's too much work the space we ran out of play, space in our location so we needed a new new uh place to move to but there was no simple next step, so then we had to make a real this decision to move bigger, and that required actually becoming a real business because we had to take a loan we had we took in investors um and we moved from a location that was maybe one hundred and fifty square meters before to a factory with one thousand three hundred square meters Gosh. Wow. and um,
0: what a bold step, yes. <laughs> How do you bridge your academic and entrepreneur personalities and perspectives and schedules?
1: The scheduling is difficult. The rest is not so much, actually. It's not Mm. so, I wouldn't say it's, it doesn't require like entirely different ways of thinking. Maybe just because that's how we do. I mean, as I said, my colleague is an academic as well. So maybe just that's how we work. We think the same way, I think.
0: So the triple IEE Matias and the roots of Malmo Matias overlap quite a bit.
1: In terms of thinking, yes. Okay. yeah. In terms of in terms of what we consider knowledge and how you approach progress and things like that, yes. I mean, we, we have limitations in the company in app- applying the scientific method, but we certainly live according to the scientific method in how we progress. Which might actually, now that we talk about it, which might have led to us being a little slower than we could have been. Mm. Maybe we're a little too cautious in some ways. Because we're not so much the type of company that just throws things against the wall and sees what sticks, okay. right? That would be more, maybe more the typical entrepreneurial person. But that's not really how... I, I guess it's because we were too influenced by academia.
2: Uh, but what were the most challenging parts of kombucha production at a scale? Because I assume it's very much different from having like small kitchen, 150 meter squares to a big factory.
1: Well, I mean, it was difficult and time-consuming to scale up production because we chose to not use the traditional or the typical food industry tricks in order to make large-scale production easy. We're not pasteurizing, we're not using flavoring ingredients, like flavoring, well, or even concentrates, you know, things that are, it can be juices, it can be pulp, some other kind of concentrate, something that is easy and predictable to handle. That's the whole thing. I mean, when you produce something on a large scale, you you want it to be streamlined and predictable and simple because that makes the process much easier. Us not doing that has meant that things were a lot harder to scale because we instead had to slowly and sometimes painfully learn basically the microbiology of it, learn how the ingredients behave with the product, how different steps in the process influence, the, for example, the fermentation speed, what temperature does, um, all of this, those things in order to manage to produce a reasonably stable product, a reasonably consistent product, mm. even though we are not doing the typical tricks in order to make it consistent and stable. Mm. It comes to sustainability, there I would say my academic background makes me actually more conflict than, than it helps. Because, for example, is Roots a sustainable business model? I don't know. It dep- I guess it depends on what you compare it with. Because obviously we have an environmental footprint mm. and it's not insignificant. From a sustainability perspective, any kind of economic activity Almost is mm. negative for for the <laughs> for the context. environment. It's it's not quite that simple, but you yeah. know it's like, it's contributing to economic growth. It's contributing to economic activity. From a societal perspective, mm. it's easier to argue. You know, you know, like we are a good employer. We are uh, we are a small company that, that that engages in the local contexts and mm. uh, and in general. My perception is that overall, it's it's a net positive on. Yeah society on the environment i'm really not so sure and it bugs me it pains me
2: a little bit seems that this is how you strike the the balance between your strong uh, environmental consciousness and the growth of your startup business
1: no no i can't i can't i can't say i I don't have peace of mind i can tell you i don't have peace of mind i don't know if any i would be curious if anybody studying sustainability has peace of mind (laughs) true actually it's not really a very true actually it's not encouraging to work with the <laughs> environment
2: you know look we had this chat uh, you know like in Mispom, like the emp program people coming from all over the world from different backgrounds for me for example i was very much aware of the physical implications environmental impact of physical infrastructure but after the first year like i was reflecting once within us that we are doomed <laughs> knowing all this kind of stuff is not helpful like you start have a bit of anxiety i would say like start thinking about your your lifestyle in a very different way but our last Question is what's next for Roots of Malmo and what's next for Matthias?
1: I, I'll tell you that in a second. But because you said uh, this realization that, that we were doing, I felt similar the first time I understood the concept of entropy. You know, I was like, oh no, <laughs> there's like yes. absolutely no no way it can get better. <laughs> um, <yeah>. It's physics. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. There actually now it becomes. I guess, I don't know if it's philosophical, but it becomes very, very uh, meta um, and large scale. But I, you know, the, this thing about having hope and perspective, mm. I, I think in the past I would tend to, to be like, oh, hope, hope is just a feeling. It's not based in facts. It doesn't change anything. And I've changed my mind about that. It, it really, it makes a difference whether you feel hopeful about the future or not. I do feel a lot more hopeful uh, these days than I did in the past. I've gone through a phase of feeling pretty bad about things and bad about the future and um, um, i I'm not even sure how exactly, but that has passed i'm I'm pretty hopeful I'm actually pretty optimistic Very nice despite everything considered. <laughs> For my research, the future is I think I I want to work hard on even more than now feeling like what I do is meaningful. doesn't mean that it has to be always necessarily solving a huge question, you know, but rather that what I do is not a waste of time, that what I do makes sense. It might be small, but it makes sense because most painful feelings I know or the most difficult feelings to handle I know is when, when you are stuck in a situation where you feel like what you do doesn't make sense, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just you are in it. People tell you what to do, or that is what you're supposed to do. You maybe get paid for doing it, but you have that feeling that it, it just doesn't make sense. There's something that's wrong about this, and and I I hate that feeling. I I, can't, I find it very difficult to deal with it. On the root side, mm-hmm. I think the well, I mean, hopefully the company continues to develop in a in a positive way. You know, so that everybody involved is happy dealing with it. From a product perspective, I mean. We are hoping to get into other fermented beverages, I think. For me personally, almost more interesting is for it to be a, a creative place that is uh, interesting to be at. Because a company can be you know, a very streamlined, boring operation or a, a more engaging, interesting organization.
0: Thank you for also bringing in your personal insights and your personal experience being being in the field of sustainability because i'm sure most of the people listening and definitely malik and i can relate and it's it's inspiring to hear your experience and how hope has taken over in the last few years thank you so much for being here today and sharing your breadth of knowledge and your personal experience researching such complex and multi-layered and sometimes watered down topics continue making the kombucha that we love so much and we wish you All the best and all the creativity and curiosity in your future endeavors. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And we will see you in the next and our last episode. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Matthias.